Ladies and gentlemen, arms and legs and assorted limbs, welcome to the Movie Morgue, the Movie Autopsy Podcast. I'm your host, Silvio Emery. And I'm Annie Neller. And with us today, in the room with me, causing many technical problems, is Kevin Zoon. Say hi, Kevin. Hi, how's it going? It's going pretty good. I'm really enjoying ruining this for you. (laughs) Well, that's what JJ says. (laughs) Damn, damn. And today, Alrighty. we are covering the 2018 Super Bowl sub- Sunday Surprise Special, The Cloverfield Paradox. Produced by J.J. Uh, Abrams and directed by Julius Ona. So, uh, let's talk a little bit of context and uh, Cloverfield and Jajabrams, as it were. Uh, well, how do we all feel about J.J. Abrams? You're going to have to feel that to someone first. There's a lot of thoughts going around here. I'm All right, sorry. Annie, you want to start? I The JJ train has derailed, and I have gotten off at the station called Disappointment. So I think JJ is great at writing the first episode of things, or the first ten minutes of a movie. <laughs> I really like his approach to setting up ideas, and I don't think he puts any thought into what happens after that. He's very careless in that way. Yeah. I think the problem with J.J. is he kind of got Elon Musk in that he did a couple things pretty well. And then people said, this guy is so good at what he does. We should let him do everything. And then he never had to develop, like, a critical approach. Really? I suppose. To to be fair, there's no telling how much involvement he actually had over this project as a producer. That is fair. But also, it, it he should be... if. He wanted it to be better. He should have been more involved because it is branded with his production company. It is produced by J.J. Abrams. It is his compilation series, whatever this Cloverfield thing is. So even mm. if technically he didn't pull the trigger, he ordered it done. <laughs> this was his hit. <laughs> <laughs> this metaphor might have gotten a little dark. This was a murder. But it is accurate. Like This is a movie murder, just like straight up. Uh, is it too late to call the podcast the movie murder cast? <laughs> I mean, I think that's what this episode is. This is about a homicide that took place. Okay. So uh, have either of you seen... I Everyone knows we did 10 Cloverfield Lane, but have either of you seen the original Cloverfield? I've seen parts. Kevin, have you seen it? I have not seen it. Okay. I've seen trailers for it. I've seen bits of footage. Maybe I accidentally glanced it like... On someone else's monitor once, that's about it. Okay. Well, in that case, I'm the expert here, and let me tell you a little bit about Cloverfield. Not very good. <laughs> uh, no characters, shaky cam the whole time, plotting pace, and the only good... Sh- there's a, two good shots. One, the shot where you finally see the monster. That's pretty cool. Actually, no, there's also the Statue of Liberty head. That's yeah, pretty that cool, even pretty if good. it is new- Escape from New York. Um, and yeah. there's also that scene where a woman explodes into blood behind a curtain because she was bitten by one of the giant mites. From the beast that's the scene i've seen it's a good scene um so beyond that like i'm i'm really surprised that it became a series or a name and i think it really tells that these are just creative projects that are slapped on with it um like we've really felt that was the case with 10 cloverfield lane uh where it was a really tight really coherent story that just had cloverfield stapled onto the end of it Yeah, now I'm actually starting to see that. Like, I remember fucking disagreeing with you about that. And now I see it, and I can't stop seeing it, both in this movie and in 10 Cloverfield Lane. Like, it feels very much like it's a sticker that they put on their notebook. Like, the monster is the sticker. It's like, come on. So, I'm going to go ahead and call myself the Cassandra of this podcast. (laughs) Damn it. Because I told you so. I told you so. You didn't listen. I know. Your martyrdom will continue throughout this podcast episode, actually. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's, let's just go ahead and kind of review this and say, what did we think of this? How does this rate as a film? And how do we enjoy this? Kevin, you're giving me a look. Go ahead. That was some side uh, eye. I think that as a film, it is a confusing mess. As a series of short films, it's pretty good. Oh, that's actually interesting. What about you, Annie? 
Um, there was one line that sums up this movie for me, and it's the line Chris O'Dowd says in the first five minutes. The systems are scrambled. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. Um, I think for me, what it comes down to is this is a great indie project. And it's not a very good Hollywood movie. Like, there's a reason this wasn't in theaters. The set design, I think, is really nice. And oh, yeah. the crowd is nice. But it really lacks a large degree of polish. And also, as much as we like to rail against the studios are interfering and making things blend crap, is like. They should have interfered yes, in this case. <laughs> they should have interfered. It would have been nice. Like, there is a certain balance to be struck. There's all to your theory, and then there's like. Uh, just let Jimmy do whatever that he wants. I mean, yeah, he's eating cranes. That's his part of his process. I mean, <laughs> there was studio interference, but their only directive was make it Cloverfield now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that's about the summary of it. I mean, I... in this case, Doc's uh, paranoid conspiracies are literally true. Oh, really? That, that it was not originally a Cloverfield project. Uh, and they came in and told them midway through production, it's it's a Cloverfield project now. Yeah, make it about Cloverfield. That's somehow. is not all, also regarding Ten Cloverfield Lane. This is also literally true because it was originally a script titled The Cellar. Huh. Oh yeah, that's kind of that's kind of right. But like the... for this one, was it more of a thing where it was kind of like, well, we've known the whole time this was a Cloverfield project, but we kept it for the actors because authenticity, like. Or was it fuck they literally off. came in? <laughs> Just fuck off. I, you know that I had to say it. Because, like, here's the thing. At least when Die Hard does that, it's always a script that was presented as Die Hard but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in Cloverfield's case, it's just a science fiction film. And in, in the seller's case, not even that particular. No, it's just a thriller. No. And it's just like, oh, this is really tense. JJ likes it. JJ would like to buy your child. What? <laughs> No, I want to... Your child's name is Cloverfield. <laughs> Come along, Cloverfield. We must go to the gardens. <laughs> so sad. Uh, so let's let's break this down mechanically. Let's kind of look at what does and doesn't work. And let's be nice to Jujabrams. And uh, let's, let's say what did work first. And I'm going to start with Chris O'Dowd, because oh, goddamn, yes. he yes. has stole the show in this. Yes. If the whole thing arm. was just him... Bitching about his missing arm and talking about giving people the finger. This would be my favorite like sci-fi comedy since probably, I don't know, Galaxy Quest. Also, the line about Kansas. We're not in Kentucky anymore. No, you Kansas. mean Kansas, don't you? Oh, fuck. Whatever. Who cares about that? People from people Kansas. Kansas. <laughs> there was some yeah, Chris, actually good writing. Chris O'Dowd had all the, all the good lines in this movie. But I'm going to disagree with you there. The best character is Chris O'Dowd's arm. (laughs) His sentient arm that knows things. It doesn't make any fucking sense. No. We didn't know where the the gyroscope was. Especially if we go with this theory that the Russian guy was emerged from 2%. That means the arm couldn't have had any way of having seen that in the past? I don't know. Probably going to have to expand on that theory, Doc. But is this the best (laughs) one? You know what? Let's throw it right in right in there. Is like that's a weird thing that happens is like first of all, that's a really amazing scene when he's like looking in the mirror and his eye is shooting to the oh, side. Yes. Oh, I hated that. Oh, I really like, like that. That's such a good image and such a well-done scene and they kind of do nothing with it. But uh we were talking about this in the preamble about how one theory we have is that uh sorry, what was his character's name? It was uh, Volkov. Volkov. It just sounds like something out of Metal Gear. Yeah, it does. <laughs> like, it really does. It's like, Volkov sent me with the nuclear codes. Anyways, so Volkov's talking in the mirror with himself, and he goes cra- space crazy, and he 3D prints a gun. And what happens with that is uh, we have this theory that, unlike everyone else who's either spliced into one dimension or the other or kicked into the ocean or kicked into the wall of the ship, he is actually both of him are existing in the same space and they're conflicting with each other and that's why he's kind of going space crazy uh i mean my alternate theory is those were the worms uh the worm that walks yes the worms (laughs) in the other dimension were a lot smarter look all he had to do was walk without rhythm and you won't (laughs) disturb the worm (laughs) 
Damn That's it. right, we're going Frank Herbert and we're going fucking Fat Boy Slim here. This is the kind of quality <laughs> referential humor you'll get on the movie more. Your Such ultimate hack podcast. Uh, hmm. I, I did like Axel Henney in this. Like, he's a really good character actor in terms of playing people who are menacing. And he does, he kind of gives that off. Like, from the first scene where he's being antagonistic with people, I did really like him in this. Um, the last time I saw him in something was in uh, the movie version of Yo Nesbo's Headhunters, and he was pretty good in that, too. It's just that they didn't really go anywhere with it. They kill him off, and then he's not menacing anymore, and I was like, no. I, mean, I want this to get weirder. That's that's kind of the thing about this film, is, like, I don't feel any of the actors did a poor job. Like, all of them, I think, with the material they were given, turned in pretty good performances. Uh, like, I, where do we think the problems are in this? Because I think it's just the well, script. Well, so I was going to get into what I liked. Yeah, no, sorry, was, go ahead. You know, I liked, uh, I liked all these premises for horror scenarios. I like. I liked some of the dilemmas they were put in. Like, I, I enjoy the part where she's like, oh, should I stay in this dimension or the other one? Yeah. Like, how sh- how shall I encounter my alternate self, even though they don't actually go into it? That's kind of my, my problem is they don't go into any of them enough. But I like all the things they started doing and then gave up on partway through. So you're doing that thing that I do where you're like, oh, this would have been a really good film if dot, da, 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 da. And you're kind of like, yeah, it's nice. That's nice. Even though it's not in the film at all. Right. But I still, I still like, like, I like what happened to Volkov. I like what happened to Chris O'Dowd um, and so on. I like what happened to Jensen. Yes. That was a really horrifying scene. That image of her stuck in the wall screaming, like that... Um, Kevin, I think before when we were talking, you were saying that you felt like this was built as short films around specific concepts. I feel like this movie was built around, like, several different images, like the worms (laughs) exploding from Volkov, her stuck in the wall, the creepy arm. I feel like it was potentially maybe built off of those images, because they are kind of enthralling and creepy and horrifying. But then the film doesn't... Push that I can see that. Where like they started outside in, they went here are some impressive, uh, like shock scenes we're gonna do. Yeah. And the thing connecting them is I don't know dimensions. Dimensions. <laughs> dimensions. dimensions. Uh, and, like, let's talk about one of the reasons I feel like this film really didn't work for me is. As, like, kind of this weird sci-fi picture show, it's kind of nice. But as a horror film, which this obstinately is, it's like a (laughs) horror space thriller. It's, I think, like, especially the way it's marketed and the way it's positioned, it's supposed to be kind of, like, in that event horizon alien kind of setting. And it doesn't work for me in particular because the way I would describe the way, especially the ship, because the ship is very much intelligent and very much antagonistic. It's reactive in a way that belays belies an intelligence. And in that way, it's impossible for me to care because the stakes are always changing and they're always completely arbitrary. In particular, when Chris O'Dowd loses his arm, the ship is eating him. And that's terrifying. Like, But also, like, why not just kill everyone? Like, there's no reason for... We have no rules to understand the parameters by which our characters are safe or are capable of success. So I can't really care about anything more than one or two scenes from where I am. So I don't mind that as much myself. Uh, what I mind is the reactiveness of the plot. Like, the the way it's structured, the characters don't really do or accomplish anything for a yeah. majority of the script. Like, they're just kind of... Like, they're always trying to fix uh, the Paradox Engine. They're they're always slightly moving toward that goal, but not in a way that we can, like, visibly witness. And then another bad thing occurs. They're not really proactive. And they have to run to go not save the person who just got hit with the new bad thing. And, and that just keeps happening through the movie. A new bad thing occurs. They react to it. And, like... There, we don't really have any capacity to understand how close or far they are from their goal of escaping. And even then, that's because we've run out of pieces on the board, not necessarily because it's paced better. Right. Uh, at that point, it's literally down to, there are some launch keys, Jensen is after them. Yeah. And that now it's understandable. Yeah. 
Jensen, I also want to say, Elizabeth Debicki it per- turned into great performance as this kind of ethereal, otherworldly, mysterious woman. But that's and what she always I love- does. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. But in particular, <laughs> there's a shit. great shot where... Uh, where Hamilton is handing her her uniform and she's just so much taller than her. And even though like she's in this vulnerable space where, you know, she's wearing, you know, this hospital gown and she's in a, uh, basically an unfamiliar environment. She's, you know, in hostile territory, so to speak. She's so completely in control of that space. And she has that serenity to her face, which just works beautifully for the role. And I feel just... Kind of falls apart. I know, I was talking about this with Kevin while we were watching this, because Kevin came to my house and we watched movies together. It was great. It was wonderful. Great. But, um, in the, I don't think there's any version of something she could have done at the end that would necessarily satisfy me. But, that ultimately, I do feel that her heel turn to, I'm going to shoot you and take the thing and save my own people, is just not nearly as interesting as... Her being aloof and having this plan, having the gears turning behind her face. Yeah, and I think that was my major problem with this movie. It felt very predictable the whole time that I was watching it. And I'm not usually a person who critiques that. Like, I enjoy things that are predictable. But for me, there were so many decisions in this that were predictable in a not fun way. And so that was kind of why when I was talking to you guys a little bit before, I told you, you know, like I wanted this to be a movie about people who are searching desperately for power, trying to keep the planet alive, and they break reality to do it. Because there was so much more that they could have done with this movie by letting reality just fracture instead of just traversing into another one. I think that would have been a really cool way to continue upping the ante because this movie doesn't really do much that's very new. Um, You could watch Life or Event Horizon or Alien um, or hell, you could even watch Prometheus. I'm sorry. And and you would find stuff in there um, that is building up to this point. I just... We needed some sort of concept that was saying something new or an interesting or different take on on what this thing is. I mean, here's the thing about that. I feel like this movie has a really bad case of tell, don't show. Because the whole thing about an energy crisis is kind of the driving plot of it. And we don't give a shit about the energy crisis. What what weirds me out is, first of all, is like they're, they're trying to make this this weird compilation series and like this kind of universe but not really a universe thing. Uh, especially uh, someone posted on Reddit that, you know, if you sync up uh, Cloverfield and the Cloverfield Paradox, the, the explosion happens at the same point in time. And that's kind of a cool gimmick. But first of all, I think if that's why the beginning is so padded out, that's a crime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that. second of all, it's like the Star Trek effect where the further in the Star Trek universe, we're really afraid to go past like TNG or so. Like, we don't like going into the future, but we keep going back and doing prequels and reboots. And as we go back, our production design and our, you know, cinematography, everything starts looking more and more modern and futuristic. So you have this thing where the further you go into the future in Star Trek, the more retro everything looks. And this is explicitly a sci-fi film. This is supposed to, I think, be set in, like, 2034 or something like that. Mm. But Cloverfield was a modern-day film in, like, what, 2008 or something like that? So I don't understand how these are supposed to line up. And even so, the way that this is set up as a future society is really, really limited. Um, You know, I didn't even know that it was supposed to be in the future until, like, basically someone told me. But uh, apparently, like... The way they talk about energy also, I think, is this really weird shorthand where they're just saying, like, there's an energy crisis. They don't talk about oil. They don't talk about renewables. They don't talk about any kind of specifics. They don't world build at all. They just say, we're running out of energy. Like, it's really abstracted and down to this, like, single bar, like it's some kind of video game resource. Well, because I don't, in in the construction of this film, it doesn't matter. Mm. 
Which sucks, right? Because, I mean, if you think about even, like, think about our current situation where we have all these people talking about climate change and there's not a consensus despite the fact that we know that there's crazy shit happening to the planet. Um, That makes for interesting dramatic tension. And I kind of wish that they would have played into that a little bit more. It would have been a little bit bolder of a statement if you want to make this a statement if you want to do that. So for instance, having a trial in front of the UN where you have a team try and put together this resource to propose this and the UN, like you're just seeing this fracture between what people think climate change is or people who don't believe that it exists and we're having this energy crisis. Like there's great dramatic tension there. If they wanted to have more stuff on earth, they could have. And I feel like the stuff on earth is... Go big or go home because there. one thing that really pissed me off about the stuff on Earth is it, a lot of it was just an excuse to pull J.J. Abrams tricks of, hey, you, there's something there, but we're not going to show you what it is. Oh, look, there's a clover field in the shadows. Maybe you don't know. You know, but you, it's in the mist, so we have plausible deniability that you don't know. Ooh. <laughs> and, like, that's the thing. We don't see any wars. We don't see any tensions. We don't see, like, food riots or anything. We don't even see, like, flashbacks to, like, her family being cold and starving and being exploded by the burning power cell or anything. Like, we have no reason to care about anyone on Earth because all we know is we get radio messages, you know, China's turning tanks. Russia's doing a ground invasion. Uh, America's milking this and that. Well, this is fundamentally a low-budget movie, and the scope of it is limited to that spaceship. And so everything else going on outside, you pretty much have to be told about. But even, like, they could have upped that. So, like, let's say you don't want to do the climate change thing, because I can understand that. It's a little controversial still. Let's say that you want to do something else, and you're talking about distrust amongst an international space crew. That's interesting, and they're doing things in here with, well, um, There are I think some prerequisites Mandarin? for that. Yeah, there, there are. There are some prerequisites for that, like their characters having personalities. Well, uh, yeah, obviously, but, like, that's okay. what I'm saying uh, is Chris that this O'Dowd doesn't have has a... a personality. His personality is funny man. Uh, Volkov has a personality, which is angry Russian. Schmidt has a personality, which is angry German. Uh, Jensen has a personality, which is mysterious angelic being and uh hamilton's personality is tragedy ma tragedy yeah oh. and, and keels is um handsome captain and like, that, yeah that is it's, the thing, it's is, very rote this, this really strikes me as a production where the script didn't get many passes because these are some very rough block characters and there's a lot of things like there doesn't seem to be how do I say this? Like, there doesn't seem to be a command structure. There doesn't seem to be any kind of organization or hierarchy or established dynamics between these characters. I feel like these characters are, like, cut out of somewhat stereotypical blocks and then just put in a room together and then operate. Like, it doesn't... I say this about a couple, a lot of films, but this kind of feels like a first pass at a script. Hmm. I don't know. Kevin, what do you think of that? Uh, I mean, I could agree... Though I think that that may be a symptom of what Annie was talking about earlier, that if this movie was built around set pieces and horror gotchas, then the characters don't really matter. Like, the the energy crisis doesn't matter. None of that matters. It's all just a vehicle for a spooky space thing happens. And... Which would be fine, except there's not a structure that supports these spooky space things. Uh, when you have Event Horizon, you have the entire thing is building up towards... There's this mysterious derelict ship. There's these weird rotating rings. There's all these corpses and audio logs, and we don't know what's going on. And it's building towards these. So when you have these horrific moments, they reverberate back through the entire film and recontextualize things, and that buildup helps really heighten those moments. Whereas in these... like. Kevin, you and I were watching this together, and yes. you know when ever anything happened that was really horrible, we'd be like, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Like, we weren't horrified. We were appreciative of craft, but we weren't <laughs> engaged. Well, although, backing up to Event Horizon for a second, who are the main characters of that? Eyes. 
eyes. All right. No. Um, that, that, that is the thing, though. And I haven't seen that recently enough to confirm, but, like, I can at least remember Sam Neill, whose personality was, I have been overtaken by the space madness. <laughs> space madness. I don't, I don't know that that counts as a personality. It counts as fucking chewing the scenery. Where we're going, we won't need eyes. Oh, like, he was having fun with that role. He sure. was, but I feel like that's part of Kevin's point here is that Event Horizon is really about dropping archetypes into this scary situation and seeing what they do, right? Which, I mean, theoretically, even this movie could have been about that, but it doesn't have a central, like, core framing concept that holds all of this together. Like, it's it's not saying something. I think that that's part of the problem with it is it, it needs something to kind of hold this together it can't just be ooh scary monsters and also space worms like that doesn't work that's fair yeah i agree that like without any kind of unifying theme to all the horror it's just kind of arbitrary stuff that's why life worked for us right Silvio, do you remember that kevin did you see life yes Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. I want to talk about the ending really fast because I'm just I'm I'm extra mad. Kevin, okay. Uh-oh. Tell Annie how I was reacting to that ending. <laughs> um, with great bluster, I suppose you would say. Oh God. <laughs> he went full no, British. Extreme volume. Extreme. <laughs> the volume. second the, the the second that the husband got on the phone as like tell her not to come back. I'm like, oh no. No, it's full of clover fields. It's full of clover fields that you didn't show us. You didn't show us. You lied. And there's, there's just a giant fucking like 80 foot tall. No, this thing's like a thousand foot tall clover field. That's what it is. It's so dumb. It's the ending of life, but even worse. I didn't think that was possible. I was so mad. So the funny thing about that, as I, as I came to understand the movie's bullshit, like really, really early, um, there's that scene where they're like watching the news with that theoretical the conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's like, we don't know what'll happen when the God <laughs> particle goes off. It could make beasts rise from the sea. And I'm like, who the <laughs> fuck thinks that that will happen? <laughs> like with, if the Hadron Collider fails, it's not going to make a Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that could have been like a really cool thing. Again, back to my idea about having some sort of scene where they're testifying in front of the UN. Have a physicist testify in front of the UN that you could, like, do something real bad to space-time with this. Oh, you know what? I actually have a great idea for a structural way to redo this movie. How? Um, here's what you do. You do the whole thing, and this has been done before, but you do the whole thing as an inquiry interviewing the last survivor. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, I like this. And then you interspeed with, like, because that is the thing, is tonally what this kind of reminds me of is, like, is a game of, there's a tabletop RPG called Dread, hmm. which is a horror tabletop RPG where instead of a dice, what you have is a Jenga tower. And every time you try to accomplish something, you remove tiles and place them on top. Ooh. And when the tower falls, you die. The, ne- oh, the rest of the awesome. players reassemble the tower and start again with some more tiles removed to make it more difficult. And so the tension is constantly rising until someone dies, then it deflates, then it rises and then it dies. And in particular, the f- way the reason that reminds me of that is because the challenges and the horrors are so completely arbitrary and so inconsistent. Now, I'm going to... I'll interject to say I've run a couple games of Dread, and it doesn't have to be arbitrary if you're, like, yeah. if you're good at storytelling yourself, but... But it can be. But it can because be. Because arbitrarily anything can kill you. As it is... As you are basically improving why someone died when they failed to do Jenga correctly. Exactly. So you're like, okay, um, I, I'm going to repair the oxygen pump with the ma- magical metal glue. Oh, you failed that. Okay, I need a reason for this to kill you now. Um, gravity fucks up and all, actually not, not gravity, magnets. And then like all your tools fly off and it makes a spark and you die. Boom, explode. Also the goo is like, it's creating horrific imagery just for being horrific imagery. In particular, I felt like the metal goo the magic cult grabbing him and tentacling him was completely unnecessary. Yes. It was just there to be like, oh, how horrifying. This is a trope in horror of the thing that penetrates you that is somehow organic. Yeah, and, Evil Dead. Yeah. Yeah, I think 
But well, he, he was already dead from that oxygen tank exploding. That's all that needed to happen. Well, that's the thing. I think this movie doesn't understand that things can be su- things can be sudden, and that can be shocking. Everything gets really drawn out. Like when Chris O'Dowd's arm gets stuck in the wall, which is such a cool scene, the way the geometry of, like, the... Tri- the uh, yeah, the, the wall panel shifts. Uh, the, the way the geodesic panel lines shift around to, like, kind of form around a hole where his arm goes is fantastic. And it draw is drawn out, but like when he dies, it should just be boom, explode. He's dead, and then everyone can go, <gasps> and the music can go silent, and then we can drift through space a little bit, and it'll be really shocking. But instead, we take the time to have him like turn away from the magic caulk, and the magic caulk is reaching out to him, and he's trying <laughs> looking at the tools, and he moves towards the magic caulk. And then I I was thinking the magic caulk was gonna spear him, right? Like that would have been cool, but then instead it grabs him, pulls him back, and then goes into his eye and does the magic tree rape thing and then you just get to oh and then he explodes which is what was gonna happen originally so it's pointless so yeah what about the higgs boson made silly putty come to life i don't know i was also expecting actually that the spark would be that thing that he uses to set the magic putty right Uh, yeah that would have been great yeah it would have been but Mm. it wasn't but like that that would also like i think that would play into the dynamic of doing like a tribunal or an investigation where you're like this sounds very unlikely it's what i saw i swear you know it's like creating this doubt and also having that doubt and having people try to explain things and also these are that would i think kind of sell that these horrific images are the only thing that exists in the story because that's what would stand out in like a survivor's mind is i saw this horrible thing i saw this horrible thing there are i like i'm all ptsd'd up and everything was full of adrenaline i was knocked out for this part and there would be a really good way to cover all these holes in the story so if we're on the subject of ways that we do the movie different and better yeah do it so so my version of the film is they we keep the the angle where they shift into another dimension into the other ship but we keep the other crew alive oh and so now we've got two alternate versions of the crew now they've got one energy ship and now they're fighting over which universe gets it right we take that conflict at the end that was mildly interesting and like really dig into it and then we make the like the energy matters there the international politics matter there talking about which of these universes is more worth saving so fringe yeah it's very much fringe (laughs) so i've I've got an expansion on that idea let me let me me pitch this at you kevin yes you do that but they're spread out throughout the ship and the ship-wide communication is down oh so they don't know it so they don't know until like halfway through the film and even then not every character knows that would work that would be pretty yeah i'd be all into that Ah, I'd be so into that. Ah! Why didn't somebody else think of this? (laughs) But, like, you could have a situation where, like... I I like the idea of having Jensen and Hamilton being mutually exclusive. Yeah. Uh, So, like, you'd have a scene where, like, Jensen comes in, sees sees Hamilton, and Hamilton doesn't know who she is. But Jensen has to act like she knows who Hamilton is so that she can maintain some kind of fiction with a different member of the crew. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. There would be a complicated web of intrigue. I know. It would require a script. <laughs> <laughs> a real script. Uh. Well, because that would, that would launch you into situations where if alternate Volkov knows uh, that alternate Brule, and I'm calling him Brule instead of it, uh, was <laughs> the traitor, like, and he starts attacking him, they don't know why that's going on, and we, the audience, may not know that that's the alternate Volkov. We don't know what's going on. I want to see this and we don't, movie. And we don't I need know. space worms to be in his brain to explain it happening. Space yeah, worms. Also, like, they never explain why they have space worms. It's just... That, that is one thing that really pisses me off about this movie is there's so many things that are there explicitly to be Chekhov's guns. Like, there's the space worms. Like, we saw them. It's like, hey, Kevin, space worms. I thought they were snakes. No, those are worms. I saw worms. And there were worms. There were so many points in this movie where I was just like, and he's going to explode full of worms. Yeah. And the gyro's going to be in his guts. And he's going to be full of clover fields. <laughs> this and... is what I was talking about in terms of predictability. Like, the, I felt the same way. It was just uh, it was... too pointy. It, it, it really diffused the tension of this movie. I feel like yeah. this movie wanted to be tense and didn't know quite how to get there. But I think, too, that... Um, so I wanted to point out one thing to you guys that 
sort of told me from the get-go that this was not going to be what I had hoped for. And that is the way that the title sequence is intercut with the shots of them failing to um, get this, what is it, particle accelerator to work. Um, so they are intercutting this really intricate process of them trying to get this particle accelerator to work with just plain black title cards with text. And it's, there are times where it's not well-timed to the music or it doesn't match up quite well with the montage they're trying to do. And so it just kind of like breaks the tension that's in that scene. Like I probably would have started off with the scene of them trying to get this thing to work and it's not working. Because that was way more interesting. Just not do so, those titles. a couple things. One, I want to go back to the title card for a second. And I want to appreciate a little bit of restraint in this film because it's not restrained in the marketing <laughs> is that they don't do that long L, long uh, P thing, long F thing that they do in the poster in the title card. Uh, because, first of all, I think that is a singularly brilliant piece of graphic design that was appropriate for 10 Cloverfield Lane and nothing yeah. else. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that they put that on the poster really pisses me off. And it's a weirdly specific thing to be really mad about. But it is a brilliant visual thing that was a callback to the structure and to the title of Cloverfield Lane. It has zero relevance to this movie, and it's all over the marketing. And I'm happy that it's not in the actual title card in the film itself, but, like, that's small. That's faint praise. It's funny because, like, the original Cloverfield doesn't have that graphical element at all. <laughs> nope. Yeah, it's just because everyone knows that 10 Cloverfield Lane is the good one. <laughs> I mean, arguably, you could say the fact that it goes up is kind of cool, but, like, it goes up and down. If it just went up, I would have been like, okay, so first you start with Cloverfield, then Cloverfield goes underground, then Cloverfield goes in the sky, whatever. But the fact that it's both just really shows it to be kind of a transparent callback. Yeah. This this is the movie poster podcast. (laughs) Oh, yeah, where we just talk about title cards Uh, and movie posters. Next, uh, we're going to be talking about Ralph McQuarrie posters from 1977. (laughs) <laughs> That'd be dope, actually. Let's do that. <laughs> oh, how did you guys feel about the foosball table? I love the foosball table. The foosball table. Are you table talking about the part where it came to life inexplicably? Yeah. I I mean, at that point, things were constantly coming to life inexplicably, so I thought, <laughs> good, I'm glad the foosball table's getting work. Yeah, I was just like, oh, we're we're poltergeist in space now. How nice. I mean, I did really enjoy it when she pulled the foosball uh, rod out and used it as a bludgeoning weapon. Yeah. Which, which I actually found kind of funny because I was expecting her to impale her with it. Because those things aren't that heavy. But they're also not that sharp. Yeah, but they're, they're more sharp than they are heavy. But they're neither of those things, really. <laughs> I'm just but I mean, really in space, puncturing is good. I'm glad that you guys have thought about murder with foosball table because this is not something that I have expertise on. Well, it depends on. on how expensive the foosball table is. Well, I used to have a foosball table in my basement, so you know, when So you really like murdering people, don't you? <laughs> it could convert into a pool table. <laughs> so actually, I I do want to talk about another thing. One thing that really kind of soured me on this film early. And this feels like I'm being very entitled in my film consumption. But in a modern film space where we have gravity, where we have life, where zero G is this really integral part of the astronaut fiction now, uh, the fact that they have gravity all throughout the ship and this unidirectional, and that it's they have gravity rings that are not aligned with the gravity of the rooms inside them, just made this feel really made for TV. I knew you were going to talk about this. I just, like, I knew it. And in part, I knew that because it was also pissing me off after having seen those two. And I was like, I can't. Why does this not feel like it's rooted in, like, the space mythos? It's because they didn't have zero G. Yeah, and because that's the thing. You don't have to spend the time and effects to do zero G. I'm not saying that every film now has to follow that thing. But the thing is... You are doing this in the astronaut paradigm. It's near Earth. It's in orbit. Uh, they're in a space station, not like a star destroyer or something. So we don't have any fiction that establishes an artificial gravity. And they are specifically putting in pieces that allude to our current methods of artificial gravity. You can have everyone be 
low gravity. You could do it, you know, 2001 style where everyone's in the rotating ring. But it feels like they just said, okay, we've explained gravity. We don't actually need to worry about that as a filmmaking device. So I'm actually, I'm willing to forgive most of the bad space gravity going on in the movie. <laughs> like, I, I just, I'll allow it. But, but there is the one scene where there's like a gap in the space station with like one tiny yes! like rail connecting them and yeah. they're clinging to it and it looks like they're going to fall off and that's the one where I go wait where is the gravity coming from <laughs> in that missing segment of the spaceship <laughs> there's there's no there's nothing there unless the rail itself is a gravity rail no and it would have to be an anti-gravity rail right cuz it's pushing them away from itself that would be... It's the paradox, Kevin. It's angry. <laughs> it's rejected you. God. And so, like, like, yeah, like, I understand if you were going to ignore gravity as a convention, but ignoring space as a convention, like the empty vastness of space, which they use two other times correctly. Another thing is, first of all, I, I want to talk about the reason that we have that scene is, like, the tail fin is falling off or going off axis or something yeah and like that's gonna doom the ship or whatever now here's a funny thing first of all the captain's sacrifice is completely unnecessary i was just like yeah uh, two minutes before that happened i was like the captain's gonna heroically sacrifice himself uh this guy's gonna die because of this this guy's gonna die because of this. i was actually wrong about a couple of those because i was too far out yeah but i i did predict that the captain was gonna die for just no to, fucking reason just to note uh dread Again, the Jenga game, there's a mechanic where the player can on purpose knock the Jenga tower down to do a heroic sacrifice. <laughs> I actually didn't know that. There's uh, too yes, many it's parallels. Very, it's it's a very important mechanic because if you think the tower is like too crumbly and you don't want someone else to die, you can sacrifice them. Or you can sacrifice yourself for their sake. But having played this game multiple times, I know a couple of different games where one of my players was bored and went i'll die now <laughs> i just want to knock the tower over <laughs> and that's what happened to the captain <laughs> he knocked the tower over but yeah like there's also just a lot of really specific things that don't make sense like um jensen is just sitting on a monitor readout that calls the degree to which the tail is rotated the tail is a fixed object there's not like a fulcrum or a hinge there. Why is there a specific readout that gives you the exact degree of rotation of it? That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, like th this is what part of I feel like this kind of lives in that similar space to I can't remember what other film we did that was this, but like I'm, I think I was gonna start describing as lo-fi. Or it's science fiction that desperately hopes that you're not aware of science fiction conventions or stories <laughs> right. or history or context. <laughs> right. Like, this is sci-fi that works if you don't watch The Twilight Zone, if you don't watch Star Trek, if you haven't seen Gravity, if you haven't seen Life, if you haven't seen Cloverfield. <laughs> like, I think watching Cloverfield takes the sting out of the ending a lot. Like... If I was had no idea that Cloverfield was a movie, like if Cloverfield was like an obscure movie from the eighties, I'd be like, "Wow, that what was that thing?" They'll look up Cloverfield. Oh, that's cool. But the fact is, this was this huge phenomenon ten years ago, and the like, no, it doesn't work. Also, calling it Cloverfield paradox really gives that away. Oh God, why? Yeah, why did they call it that? From okay, that was another beef that I have. Um, but also, like Doc, to your point, like about all these other films that have done this stuff. I'm also thinking about Black Mirror. So uh, one of the yeah. things that's amazing about Black Mirror as a series is that it's pushing us to think differently about space. So like, for instance, the last um, season that just came out, the USS Callister, it is a episode that is set in space, but also that is a virtual space. And so, like, it's pushing us to think differently about these things, and it has this sort of, like, organizing concept in it. I just don't think that a movie like Cloverfield Paradox can do very well in a world where we have not only this whole body of sci-fi that exists, but now this new series, which is really doing new and important things and asking new questions. Like, it just, it feels old hat. It feels recycled. It feels like a bunch of tropes that are kind of like jumbled up together that that makes sense i mean black mirror has spent so much time 
on the human cost of things. Like kind of it spent it's a show that spends a lot of time thinking about stuff. It this does. Is a movie that doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about nothing. <laughs> no, and I'm not saying that, you know, like this has to be like some totally thought provoking piece or anything like that. It just it would have been nice to have it say something and and say it like fairly directly or succinctly throughout. And and maybe it's that it has pretensions to those things, at least at the start with this energy yeah. crisis. Yeah. Which it has Where, like, if it hasn't, if it hadn't tried at all, it might not be so bothersome. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, that was, that was the thing that I felt was set up in the initial scene where the husband is telling her to go. Which, like, Kevin, you remember I commented this when we were watching, he's like, this guy's kind of a selfish cunt. <laughs> he, he's, he's not like, it's not like, go pursue your dreams and save your money. He's just like, he's just like, well, if you don't go, we're going to have to deal with the consequences eventually. Right? He's, right. like, the message seems to be that, like, he's a selfish dick and, like, he doesn't want to face the end of the world, so she should, you know, throw herself into the maw of industry to maybe hopefully prevent this. I don't know if I saw it that way. Um, I, I think it was more of, like, well, you know what, like, we've lost our kids and she wants to do this and she thinks that she and, and the people that she's working with can save us why the hell not i mean it's possible i don't think it's the intended read but that was the read i came away with because like the dialogue is really awkward and it does seem to be trying to grapple with some kind of human cost is like i should go it's like no i'm replaceable i'm the thing and it doesn't really get into this it's just get into this weird muted relationship dynamic where he's like go because it's important and it seems to be like the theme is going to be like that you are sacrificing personal relationships to save the world or something like that. Well, and it does pull that back at the end when she's like, I'm like, I'm going to try and get my my children back at the expense of like seeing the mission through. Oh, yeah. Kevin and me were just like, so you have to murder yourself, right? <laughs> the entire time. Right. Like this isn't this is not a. It's not a clear-cut scenario. You can't just show up and be like, it's me, your mom now. Congratulations, kids. You get two moms. <laughs> also, yeah. this mom lost you and has the PTSD flashbacks every time she sees you, so she cries a lot. But she cries you cookies. in a window that is filled with videos of your faces, <laughs> too. That circular window where she was just watching her kids. I was like, oh, oh Yeah, that's the so other bad. thing that doesn't make sense is they... So, obstinately, and we're, we're going to have to label the universes for a second here, because they're yeah. also going to get really confusing, but let's call the universe we begin in Universe A, and we call the universe they go to Universe B, okay? So, Hamilton in Universe A, uh, the, what was the name of the, the Shepherd? The Shepherd was the yeah. name of the station. So, the Shepherd station from Universe A activates its thing and pops into Universe B. The Shepherd in Universe B explodes, and crap pieces of it crash all over Earth. But uh, Jensen B arrives in uh, Shepherd A, stuck in the walls, screaming. Great scene. Like, pretty horrifying. But uh, at that point, though, uh, we have Schmidt A on Shepherd A. But it seems to me the intention of the film is that Schmidt B was a traitor and that they declassified the communications of Schmidt B in the ship A's systems. And also all the videos of Hamilton B were on the were on ship A system, even though Hamilton B was not on Shepherd B. So why are those videos there? The the ship's fused, Doc. They you see they yeah, they, they overlaid. They Reality's quantum, fused together. Quantum, no, one's in pieces in the ocean. We saw pictures quantum. of the things they chose to show and not tell us. They showed us that the other ship is gone. How many times do I have to say quantum? Hashtag quantum doesn't mean what anyone thinks it means. <laughs> quantum means small and tiny. Oh, so uh, something that uh, that does remind me though. Mm -hmm. So one of the one of the big like conundrums they are faced with is uh-oh the planet's gone right oops or oops no earth but then they go ah ha ha it was just on the other side of the sun all along we once they got the gyro out of worm boy uh <laughs> but like 
if they overlaid with B and crashed it, why were they on the other side of the sun? Exactly. Never explained. Because no one knows how to science. I think that's what's going on. That That is the other thing. Like, I actually didn't think they had a medical officer for a while until later they said, yeah, Monk's the doctor. And then he's not even a good doctor. Just the, <laughs> the Chinese chick does the surgery instead because Monk's squeamish for some reason as the doctor. Well, because I think that guy was his friend. So I think he was sad. He's supposed to do that. That's literally his job. But sometimes but here, you're here, too sad thing. to here, cut open your buddy. Well, also, he was full of worms. He yeah. exploded full of worms. Yeah. Would you want to cut I, open ca- a dude full of worms? No, no, I, 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 I understand. But, like, <laughs> it's, it's just, I felt like he was established as the doctor, and then, like, he just came off as kind of squeamish. Yeah. And also, yeah. like, he was the devout character, which kind of went nowhere. Yeah, I wasn't sure what they were trying to do with that. Yes. Um, but I was like, so a godly man, an atheist, and a commie walk into a bar. <laughs> no, but where I was going with this was... There doesn't seem to be... None of them feel like astronauts. They just feel like like a ship crew, like on a boat, maybe. Mm. But when I think of especially distinguishing like space sci-fi from astronaut fiction, and this is definitely astronaut fiction, where it's near Earth, it's terrestrial, it's about being in space and being in orbit, and not necessarily being on intergalactic star cruises flying across the milky heavens. When it's, you know, real people and like this kind of hard sci-fi kind of pretension is when you send people to space, you send astronauts who know astronomy and have the vaguest <laughs> fucking idea where they're going. So they would look at the stars and go, I don't see I don't see Sirius. Or they'd see like there's Orion, but, like, it's kind of off. Like, where are we? Like, they have some idea. When they see... When O'Dowd sees... What's the star system? Cassiopeia. Cassiope- when he sees Cassiopeia, he's like, it's upside down. Which made me think, oh, so they're going to find out that they're on the opposite side of a constellation. They're like, no, we're just on the opposite side of the sun. That's not how any of this works. Actually, coming up with that, they, they framed that dilemma as we don't know where we are. Yeah. But if the sun was there, yep. <laughs> and also Mars and all the other planets of our solar uh, system, huh? These they, guys are idiots. Like they spun around. They're like, "Oh no, where's the Earth gone?" But they would have seen the sun at some point. Uh, it's, yeah. It's these kinda, guys. It's hard to miss. These like, guys are idiots. This is the B team. These are the people who did not pass astronomy one hundred and one. No, these are the A team because for they're from the A universe, but they went to the B universe where everyone died, <laughs> except Jensen, who apparently didn't explode with a ship and just teleported into a wall halfway across the sun. Wall hacks. <laughs> um, uh, SV underscore no clip underscore one. <laughs> Oh, it just makes so let's let's talk about the horror imagery for a moment because I want to go back to that because there actually is yeah. some really good stuff in there. Yeah, mm-hmm. there is. Um, do we have any particular favorites? Uh, any? I mean, we have talked quite a bit about Jensen in the wall, but I do have to say that is undoubtedly one of my favorite images in this. The fact that she's screaming so loudly, the way that the music comes to a crescendo. Um, the cables that are running out of her body, the blood in her mouth, the fact that she's clearly in pain. Like, it's an image that's horrifying because it's about immense suffering and also about the fact that something is wrong here. Like, reality is broken in that space. And, ah, uh, I really like that image. That was good. How about you, Kevin? Um... I do think the one that actually affected me was the the thing with Volkov where his eye goes wrong. Um, because, A, that's, like, the one thing that was subtle. Yeah. As far as, like, small things happening. In, and, like, body horror works on me. So I'm like, oh, there's something in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anytime something crawling under someone's skin, that's, that's always bad. Uh, Volkov was good. And I also liked... Even though I feel like the space madness didn't make any sense, I still feel it was unnerving enough. Hmm. And actually, I want to point back to a silly thing again: is that the security protocols on this star sh- on this station mean nothing? They are it's non-existent. Like, oh, you're not supposed to 3D print a gun. Override. You're not supposed to open other people's email. Override. <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to be able to lock this airlock. Override. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like later on, when uh, Tam is in the 
uh, airlock being filled with water for some inexplicable reason, uh, one of the crew members opens up a side panel and starts doing a Bioshock hacking puzzle trying to open it. <laughs> yeah. It's just nothing on the ship works that way. Uh, so regarding horror imagery that really works, I was actually a big fan of Chris O'Dowd's arm getting stuck in the wall. Mm-hmm. First of all, because it had that really wonderful thing where you had this geodesic, uh, and I don't know if I'm using geodesic. I think I that think might that's only right. apply to domes. But it's those triangular pattern in, of structure to reinforce the wall panels. And the those are shifting around his arm and creating kind of this black hole. It really feels like an illustration of like, you know, curved space-time, for example, that's sucking his arm. And it it gives that sense of arbitrary and intelligence behind the design that gives it this real menace. Especially, it's one thing when he's being dragged around the panel, and uh, I think it's Keel, the captain, who's coming in trying mm-hmm. to pull him out. It doesn't work. And you have that feeling of his arm is stuck in his steel bite. It's very, like, 127 hours. And then once he's dragged off that particular panel, once it becomes very clear that it's the ship itself, it's the entire ship, the entire wall, the entire construct, it's not just this one panel that happens to be dangerous, that's a really good moment. And the fact that's happening to what I think is the most likable character in the film really adds to the tension of that compared to... Like, there's a lot of characters who have horrifying things due to them that I kind of don't care about them as characters. Like, Volkov, as effective as the things that happen to him are, I kind of don't care about him, especially once his character is assassinated via space madness. <laughs> but, like, with Chris O'Dowd's arm, and, I mean, let's be honest, he is playing Chris O'Dowd in space, um, don't you kind of feel like there should have been some decay going on with his arm at some point? Like... If we wanted to really continue with this, I feel like there should have been some decay. I don't know, because um, well, we have no after, sense of time. After the incident started, I'd say it's probably less than eight hours. Oh, okay, so that wouldn't have been time for anything yeah. cool to happen. Also, it was, it was still alive. It was, it was writing and walking around. I do think that... I, I think it's safe to say, though, that that was probably... Uh, Mundy B's arm. Yeah. No, because I, re- I remember... Because there's no way for him to have that knowledge unless we want to attribute knowledge to the arm itself. But why would Mundy B know that I, anyway? Yeah. I don't know. That but doesn't make sense. Like, it, it's no, an well, arm Nothing about brain. this film makes sense. It, when we didn't <laughs> know what had happened to be, to uh, Shepard B yet, that made sense because I like to imagine at that point that Mundy, B, Mundy A's arm was on Shepard B... <laughs> Flicking off that crew. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, I'm, I get it. It's just like you need a brain to make an arm move. And so I, well, as cool as there's possessed two, there's two options. is. Either it's still connected to him or and then you've got that cross Mundy feed, which I guess is kind of ruled out later in the movie. I like cross Mundy feed. This <laughs> is really funny because I work with a guy named Mundy. It's kind of great. Lovely fellow. And, or the, the ship or the event or God has an intelligence that is imbued into the arm because that's information that Mundy doesn't have. So, like, either way, nothing makes sense. I think that the cross-Mundy hypothesis would have made sense until they went, oh, yeah, no, the other crew's all dead. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was why I was thinking that, you know, like, having reality literally break would be the only thing that would make that make sense, but... Actually, you you know what would have been a great detail if we went with the both crews alive uncertainty thing? Is if each Monday had lost a different arm. Uh, I mean, Uh, the the one other thing that could explain it is time travel, but they don't do that. Or do they? Because how, there are Cloverfields, how Kevin. does an arm time travel, guys? How does an arm time travel? Quantum. Uh, Stop saying you know, quantum. Stop saying quantum. Okay, we might Stop need to tweet this quantum. at Neil deGrasse Tyson. Just because J.J. Abrams gets away with using <laughs> shitty sci-fi words to explain entire concepts that he knows nothing about doesn't mean we get to. We have standards on this podcast, Kevin. <laughs> Seriously, though, we should tweet at Neil deGrasse Tyson and ask him what he thought of this movie because I have a feeling that the result of that would be no. Just like I don't want to talk to Neil Tyson. Angry. Because no, no, no. Here's the thing. Uh, I saw Prometheus in the theater 
and Neil deGrasse Tyson was at that theater. And there was, Wait, a, like, a little what? conference at the end of it where everyone got around and we talked about the movies. And I remember... Neil Tyson's kind of a dick because one thing I said was I loved how like the aliens are like a bioengineered weapon and like that really makes a sense as why there's like this unsustainable predator unit and he's just like you love the idea that there's a biological weapon? I'm like oh yes mother I'm intrigued by the fictional conceit <laughs> I really hope that this story is true and that your This is absolutely is true. I have a photo Tyson. of me with Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'll send it to you later. Now we have a podcast, Nemesis. Like, I can't believe this. This is everything that I've ever dreamed and hoped for. Everything. All right, oh cool. So enemies, friends of the podcast include Kevin Zoon. Enemies of the podcast include Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> you have much more powerful enemies than friends. We do. We have well, apparently in the movie universe, physics doesn't fucking matter. So whatever. This oh. is it. This is your chance. You can you can bond at last with Neil deGrasse Tyson over this movie. <laughs> you can repair you can this repair burnt bridge. The Tell you what, Neil deGrasse Tyson, here we go. This is my this is my peace offering. This is my olive branch. Please come on my podcast. <laughs> 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 I'm still mad at the giant clover field. I sort of just like going to call them now. It's like a, some kind of weird kaiju thing, but it, it's just a clover field. Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't look like anything particularly special now that we've had Pacific Rim. That was the other thing that I was thinking about. Too. Monsters are going to rise from the ocean. What? <laughs> it's just not as cool, man. It's just not as cool. You know what? You know what annoys me? <laughs> they, it, it's specifically the title because the entire thing hinges on the Cloverfield Paradox. And presumably that's some kind of thing where it's like, well, if you have a particle accelerator, somehow you get free energy. That's the entire premise of the Cloverfield Paradox, both the film and the paradox in-universe. But they never even give like a half-hearted techno-babble bullshit explanation. They just keep saying, because of the Cloverfield Paradox, again and again and again, and never even attempt to explain it or have characters question or interact with it beyond accepting Cloverfield Paradox. That means we win. That means that's the thing that we want. We want the Cloverfield Paradox. It's called a paradox. It's something that, as a phrase, inherently suggests some kind of conflict or uncertainty, and no one gives a shit. You know, I'm surprised at this point we haven't mentioned that I don't, I don't see any way that a particle accelerator could create free energy. Um... Right? If like, we're going to go like, into thermodynamics, we're going no, to be here for another three hours. We can't hours. do that. We can't do that. I know. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's just, hey, don't we have to put in a huge amount of energy to accelerate the particles? We don't tend to get it out. We don't. It, it's a huge loss. Yeah. Like, literally, all they had to say was... The Cloverfield Paradox is like this thing where if you get a uh, particle collision... Uh, things like it'll open a hole into the inside of a black hole and pull out all that energy or something like that. Just any kind of dumb illusion. I don't care how dumb the sci-fi is. Hawking, At least have some sci- Yeah, there you go. Hawking have radiation. some fucking science in your science fiction. Don't just, like, have some fiction in your science fiction. Don't just say sci-fi and then just smile at me and nod while I'm like, a bit? Well, what, what do you mean by that? It's just Cloverfield Paradox. But what does that mean? Cloverfield paradox. Also, have something that has a real cost, right? So if you're draining energy from a wormhole, make that draining energy from another universe. So the cost of their survival is the death of another universe. Like, something that has real weight to it. Again, this is fringe. <laughs> yeah. Wait, the plot of what? Well, let me tell you about link cables, Kevin. No, but like that, that, that would be a great thing. Is like that's a different setup that I think probably would have worked for this. Is like they're running the thing, it starts working, we get free energy, we save the world. But like fragments of the other universe start bleeding through. And like that's ah. the human cost of the energy is like people start showing up in the walls. Oh, like dude, that would be a workable script. And then awesome. like you can have like a heroic sacrifice where it's like, no, I'm not gonna sacrifice another world, another world that has my children in it to save ours like that would be a really compelling like conflict or like doubt but no it's just well we got free energy because there is actually this huge sacrifice to make the whole thing going it's building this giant fucking space station it's having all those kilomega gigajoules set up to get the thing running but those costs don't matter because 
we're never shown any of the cost of creating all that. We're not shown the building of it. We're not shown the training of the astronauts. We're not shown the launch sequence. We're not even given that cursor like Apollo style footage. We're just, oh yeah, I'm just going up into the space station now. See, Doc kind and then of they're there for like two years. a Charles Dickens like They're there version. for two years. So it's not like there was any urgency or so. I mean, I know it was urgent, but they don't show any urgency. So it's just like, it kind of feels like they were just dicking around playing foosball for two years. I mean, kind of. But also, Doc, like, you can't start off a movie with, like, chapter one, I am born. And, and just, like, do the whole, you know, the thing where you're just telling people everything. Because I feel like, again, that's part of the problem. This film needs a central concept. It's got a great cast. Um, but if it had that central concept, if it had that driving force, it could have said something and it could have been a meaningful contribution to this genre of what you're calling astronaut sci-fi? Is that what you said? Astronaut lore? Or something like that? Yeah. If you stop this movie about halfway, this is a great setup for a Sliders reboot. <laughs> <laughs> no. I've been Sylvia Emery. You guys can follow me on Twitter at DoubleDocMD. And as always, I've been Annie Neller, and you all can find me on Instagram at, at Lights and Music. Uh, for the moment, I am Kevin Zoon. You could follow me if you felt like it, at Kevin Zoon. <laughs> yeah. As always, our intro music is Trouble from the EP of the same name by Ipso Factopus. Link to their Bandcamp in the description. If you liked what we do, thanks for staying around. Uh, please like us, share us, review us, subscribe to us. Uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, the whole thing. It's all good. It all helps. SoundCloud, why not? And also, if you feel like supporting us more directly, we have a Patreon. Uh, hit us up. It's on the list. Uh, maybe we can afford to go to space someday. Who knows? Anyways, thank you guys so much. Have a fantastic time, and we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.